Good morning. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Natchang Rungshe, Chapter 29, Part 2. It meant nothing more than it was. It was sad in some ways and amusing in others. I told my mother about it and she also found it both sad and amusing. How can they disown their own son? Then they force him to marry this girl. What kind of parents are they? Your father would never have done something like this. No, Mum, he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have forced me to marry anyone. I met the Hackmans once and they were not exactly cultured people. In fact, they were semi-literate. Not that I'm saying semi-literacy is a crime. But when you combine it with affectation, pretension, snobbery, pomposity and lack of humanity, it's not a pleasant picture. It occurred to me that Jack, as a product of his upbringing, was actually quite a reasonable human being. He had possibilities. In the right circumstances, he could develop and evolve a broader sense of what it was to be human. Maybe I'd find myself pleasantly surprised on meeting him again in the future. As this thought was passing through, I suddenly stopped short. Did I have possibilities? Would I be pleasantly surprised by what I'd become in the future? That was the key issue. I'd seen what was possible for Jack, but what was possible for Nakpachurgyam? Would my time in India and Nepal change me for the better as far as Kyabjai Dujam Rimshe was concerned? Would I be able to take authentic advantage of what I received? I'd already had such wonderful opportunities with Dujam Rimshe and recently with the 16th Gyalwa Karmapa, but I still felt a little too much like a dilettante in my own apprehension of where I was. It wasn't that I was just playing with the idea of living as a Nakpa. I knew I was serious, but was that serious enough for what Dujam Rimshe had intimated? I was supposed to receive visionary teachings. How could a person like me achieve that? I was supposed to have found a Sangyum, but had fallen at the first hurdle with my choice of a lady friend. Although, having said that, I realised that it hadn't been a choice. I'd simply acquiesced. Claudette Gascoigne had made the running, and I did nothing to alter the outcome she had in mind. I realised that she could have been almost anyone sufficiently intelligent and witty. Be that as it may, I'd gained three years living with three wonderful friends and that was entirely due to debt. I hoped I would be able to find a way to explain it all to Dudjum Rinpoche without his concluding that I was the most dismal drivelling dolt and utter waste of space. Were the blues band dreams that I'd claimed to be dead actually dead, or had my dreams just bottomed out? Was I just like Jack in my own way, 
merely doing a runner. How could I answer such a question? Who could assist me with such an inquiry? Lama Chimeyonten had advised David Bowie to stay with rock music rather than becoming a monk. Akong Rinpoche had advised Leonard Cohen to remain a musician rather than taking monastic vows, because he could always do that when he was older. That was one possibility, if the story I'd been told was true. But Akong Rinpoche made no comment of that sort to me. Galwa Karmapa made no such comment either. So what was I doing bandying such nonsense around in my head? I remembered the words of Dujan Rinpoche. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. After a few days of mental meanderings, I pondered the possibility that my conjecture might merely be the result of anxiety. Might I be as much of a coward as Jack? Was I just afraid of nine months in the Himalayas? No, I was looking forward to it with enormous eagerness, but simultaneously questioning my capacity to be what I needed to be. It was the possibility of failure. I thought about what I'd said to Jack in the Nostril Cafe. Being on stage with Savage Cabbage was more truly what I was than anything else that, than, that has ever happened. That wasn't completely true, however. I'd said it for Jack. I could have told Jack that there was another area of my life where I'd felt like that, and actually more so. Although we touched on Buddhism briefly before we parted, there was no way I could have explained my experience of Dujan Rinpoche or Gyalwa Kamapa. Being in the presence of those lamas was always timeless. There was no sense of anything lacking, or of any kind of expectation. There was nowhere to go in those situations other than where I was. Even when I was not with my lamas, I was simply going about my life as a practitioner. That was entirely understandable in the Tibetan communities in which I'd lived. As soon as these notions percolated sufficiently, I realised that what I was experiencing was a waiting room, a departure lounge. I was simply experiencing the bagtrag of my old life. Bagtrag, usually called karmic traces, are residual patterns, unconscious propensities and tenuous dispositions. They are impressions, imprints, inclinations, latent predispositions. I could also call them velayities. A velayity is a desire so slight that one is not inclined to act on it. Well, maybe I'd not act on these velayities, but they could certainly obfuscate a clear and restful state of mind. As soon as that was clear, 
what had seemed like an approximate abyss suddenly felt natural. The anxiety on the high diving board at Aldershot Swimming Pool when I was young had always vanished as soon as I dived. So, sitting in my mother's garden, I found myself having dived. The three terrible oaths of Dorje Truro came to mind. Whatever happens, may it happen. Whichever way it goes, may it go that way. There is no purpose. Each purpose was simply its own movement in time. There was no one purpose. There was no God working his purpose out. I remembered the hymn we sang at school. God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that shall surely be, when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What was that supposed to mean, as the waters cover the sea? The water is the sea, and the sea is the water. I supposed it was merely poor composition, poor linguistic usage. There was no God and no purpose being worked out in any case. There is simply the infinite purity of the phenomenal world and the natural efflorescence of empathetic appreciation. Phenomena are self-creating. What lay ahead of me would be created moment by moment, according to my perceptions and their concomitant responses. Jack's choice could not be my choice. There was no Jack's choice for me. I'd already made my choice. I'd made it back in 1971 when I went to Nepal and met Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche. I'd made it before that. I'd made it when I began reading Buddhist books and practising silent sitting meditation at the age of 14. I'd made it even before that, at the age of eight, when I first set my eyes on those Tibetan photographic journal books in my school library. I'd made it in my infancy, when welcoming the presence of Kyung Chanaro Lingma in my bedroom as a dream of clarity, as a visionary experience. The choice had merely taken time to unravel, and it had only continued to unravel because I never let up on it. It had been a thread as far back as I could remember. It had been a thread that had always made sense both intellectually and emotionally. Blues had been a thread too. It went back almost as far, but it wasn't vast and pervasive as Vajrayana was vast and pervasive. It was also less particular. I didn't have to become a Vajrayana performer. I was already a Nakpa, and that was all I ever wanted to be. I'd already arrived at my destination. Now all I had to do was live in that destination. Part of living 
that destination was travelling to the Himalayas. It was having no direction home. The words of Bob Dylan. I pondered, how did it feel to be on my own, like a complete unknown, with no direction home, like a rolling stone? It felt fine. I'd moved into the abyss. That was my home. The last day became hours, and the hours became minutes, and, as if I'd only just left Bristol, I was leaving Woodfield Lane for the Himalayas. I left knowing that I'd never return as the person who set out. That was almost exhilarating. I smiled about Jack's asking me whether I'd write a book about my adventures, like Lawrence of Arabia. Writing an adventure book was the last thing on my mind. Apart from my mother and brother, I'd leave not a trace behind. I'd remember the words of Dudgeon Rimshay. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. The adventure I'd have was not going to be crossing torrents on rickety bridges. I wasn't going to be scaling icy heights in savage winds. I'd not circumambulate Mount Kailash evading bandits. I wasn't going to ride wild yaks on the Changpang or ride with Golok brigands. I wouldn't be marrying a Bhutanese princess yogini and living in a mountain hermitage that clung to the side of its staggering heights, lost in attenuated shreds of cloud. The list of what wasn't likely was extensive, but I had no dreams of high adventure. I simply wanted to absorb as much Vajrayana as I could and plunge into the visionary mechanics of it. As to what would happen in the Himalayas, the list was sculpted in temporal sands, written in water, on droplets of mist, burnt into fire with the quill of transparency, recorded in wind with the lens of non-conceptual silence, and translated in space, by space, as space. Final evening before leaving Britain, walked in the woods, I set out to see the trees. I'd always known and loved those trees. I found the old yew where I used to perch as a child and where I'd meditated as a teenager. The yew was not as large as I remembered it, but the branches didn't feel as if they wouldn't welcome me. I found the comfortable spot where I used to sit and settled into it. Time passed. Hours passed without a sense of anything unusual. I hadn't intended to sit for more than a brief period, 
but darkness was not far off when I suddenly became aware that Arrowlingmar had sparkled out of the dim. I'd realised that her presence had been there before my notice of her became apparent to my concept consciousness. I did not know how that was possible. I remembered the same thing had often occurred when I was a young child. As with every other time I'd witnessed Arrowlingmar, there'd been no words, but communication had occurred. I'd known unknowable, inexpressible fields of noetic value. On this occasion, however, I knew that I was on the brink of a pluripotential juncture. I was approaching the culmination of a vector whose inception was inseparable from my conception, inseparable from my empty continuum. The only recognisable coordinate in that unfathomably vast expanse was Kyabje Dujam Rimshe Jigdrel Yeshe Dorje.